0: Find a seat, we'll get started. And getting started means having some notes. And we will be on page 16 of those notes. And the guys have some. Bill has some over here. Anybody over here need any? Thank you, Bill. And then anybody else over this way? All right, the guys are passing them out. Very good. Thanks for your efficiency, fellows, and getting that stuff out. Page 16 in the notes, and thank many of you for bringing the notes back each week. We'll pick up where we left off last week on page 16 in a moment. Let me announce some things that are coming up. This Wednesday at 7 o'clock is the Pinewood Derby, the annual Pinewood Derby for Our kids, uh, this finishes off the Pioneer Club year. Our midweek program, Wednesdays, does not meet through the summer, so this is the end of that. The Derby itself starts at 7. There is a hot dog dinner that uh, begins at 6. So uh, even if you don't have kids, come and just cheer them on. The kids just uh, love it and love the support if you can do that. For that, though, there's a big track that's set up in this room, and it means the chairs have to be moved uh, to the side. So men, if you could hang around for literally not more than 10 minutes, it takes us not more than 10 minutes, maybe just five, and we're able to stack these in stacks of five. And uh, then uh, Pastor Larry's actually going to give uh, detailed instructions about where we want to move them, but they get stacked in stacks of five. So I'll try to remember at the end of our time to remind of that, but we do need to get the chairs stacked to make room for the setup for Pinewood Derby. On Memorial Day, that's the 30th, so it's just a couple of weeks away, two weeks from tomorrow, we always have a picnic on Memorial Day here. Uh, That will start at noon and go till roughly 4 o'clock. And you heard the things that we ask you to bring for that. The church supplies, the main dish. We ask everyone to bring a side dish, but then also if your name uh, is A through L, your last name starts with A through L, then we ask you to bring a dessert. If it's M through Z, to bring a two liter uh, beverage. Uh, and also we have a roped off area for the kids to play so you can bring uh, bikes and th- those kinds of things, big wheels for them to ride if you if you like. Bring some outdoor games, lawn games with you as, as well. On June the 12th, starting on June the 12th, we have four classes that will be going on during this hour and you need to register for those classes. So that's why we've been for the last few weeks pressing that so I'm just going to pause dramatically here. Got everybody's attention. Why is he pausing? Because it's really important that you register for these classes. okay? Um, we need uh, those four classes. We need to know how many people are going to be in each, and for some of them, we need to know which people. We actually need it's not just a number we need. We need names because for that, gospel centered marriage class there's going to be small groups at tables and we need to assign people to those tables. We want young married couples to be together at their tables and then we want uh, the home builders, older married, to be at tables together. So in order to assign that ahead of time and tell you which table you're going to be at, if you're in that class, then we've got to have your name. So we need you to register for that if you're planning on taking the marriage class, which I uh, strongly urge you to do if you fit in that category. And then we've got the uh, senior servants class, the senior servant, the senior servants class. Sharon, um, Sharon Seal was telling me the other, she called it, she she called it the senile servants class. And I, and I, and I said to Sharon, you said that because you can't remember the name of the class. (laughs) It's the senior servants class. That's the 60 and over group. And then the crossroads group, that is our uh, young adults, the college and career. And then there's a class on the book of Ephesians. And for those, we need you to register, particularly the senior servants, in order uh, to know how much space we need. So for the marriage class, we need to know the names. Uh, For the others, we need the numbers so we know which rooms to allocate. So for all of them, if you would be so kind, as to register for those. If you go to our website, cbctrenton.com, uh, then it's very easy. I mean, literally take you 30 seconds to register for those classes. I mean, it would just throw my heart if this afternoon we had 200 people signed up for those classes. Uh, but in order to not be disappointed, I'm not counting on any of that uh, actually happening. No, but please do that, and we'll be hounding you over the next few weeks to try to, try to get that done. Parent dedication is on Father's Day, uh, as I mentioned, first hour, so that's the 19th. And if you want to participate in that, which parents, I encourage you to do, that I will send you the resolutions to which uh, you're agreeing. And uh, I think it's a healthy thing for the church, for parents to commit themselves to raising their kids the way the Lord requires, and then for us as a church family to aid in that and to pray for that and to hold accountable for, for that. So uh, email me, uh, if you have my email address, kb at cbctrenton.com, kb at cbctrenton.com, or we'll be uh, giving you ways to uh, register for that in the next few weeks. Family camp uh, is Sunday, begins Sunday, June the 26th, the June the 26th, so Sunday afternoon. So that doesn't mean to go to family camp and miss church that morning. We go to church and then we go to family camp after that. But uh, then we have like five days uh, up in Mackinac and we we have a great time. But space is limited. We need to know who's going and I encourage you. It's church family camp, so it's not that you have kids in the home necessarily. Anybody in our church is welcome and encouraged to be a part of our church family and go to camp together. All right. Last time we left off on page 16, so we're going to, to pick up there. Have you ever witnessed someone who's... Just trying too hard, trying too hard for something, trying too hard to be funny, trying too hard to fit in, trying too hard to be liked. So we, we say, we'll say that sometimes, you know, somebody will try to, you can tell they're and then you, somebody will go, they're trying too hard, okay? So you're trying to be funny, you're trying to fit in, you're trying to be liked. You, you can also try too hard at really any task, try too hard. You can actually try too hard to succeed at things like marriage and parenting. That sounds weird to say, and I'll try to explain, but just any task any, and any situation that you find yourself in, it is possible for you, for me, to try too hard at it. And here's why that is important and why I bring it up. Trying too hard causes us to stumble. It causes us to err. It causes us actually to not do the thing that we're trying too hard at in the best way. It causes us to stumble. It causes us to err. All the while, we're then miserable. We don't feel quite right until it works. Until, If I'm trying to get people to like me, until I'm convinced that people like me, then I'm miserable until I can succeed at it. You know, I just really want to be funny, and if if I'm not funny, you know, then I'm miserable until because I see other people being funny, and they can just do it like that. They can just come up with these things off the, you know, and everybody just, they're the life of the party, and I want to be the life of the party. And I remember a a preacher saying, uh, some of you know um, the name Kevin DeYoung. Uh, I went to a seminar that Kevin DeYoung was teaching on preaching years ago, and he was, uh, he's a hilarious guy, by the way. (laughs) He could be a stand-up comedian. He's really funny. But one of the things he said was, Hey, look, if you're not funny, don't try to be funny. okay? Because <laughs> it just is a mess. And he's right. You know, some people are and some people aren't. So just don't, don't try Be to be you. Uh, but you're, you just aren't satisfied until you can obtain that thing that you're trying too, too hard at. So the more you... Now think about the downward cycle here then. The more you stumble, the more you err which you do if you're trying too hard, then the less it works, and the less it works, then the more miserable you are. The more miserable are you are, then you want to get out of that misery so you're going to satisfy it by doubling down and trying harder. And the more you try harder, you're just in this downward, downward spiral. And here's the thing. You, you may never get it to work. The thing, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, you may never get it to work. Now this is sobering. I'm gonna say it, and I am hesitant, I admit, I'm hesitant to say it, because as a parent, I hate to I hate to say it. Because I hate to I hate to think about it as I know any loving parent does. But you know, if if I insist that I must be successful at parenting, I insist this has got to turn out right. But see the truth is you don't ultimately control that. And neither do I. I don't really, I don't, you don't know. Now, my girls are grown, and so, so far, so good. You know, they're grown now. But, you know, when they're when they're 6 and they're 10 and they're 15 and you're trying to, and you're going through the different things they're going through and you're trying to help them, and you don't know for sure how it's going to turn out. So it may never work. And yet you are trying to get it to work, and you might be trying too hard to get it to work. And when you try too hard to get it to work, then you continue to err, stumble, and the downward spiral that I'm talking about. So then, what does that mean? (laughs) Does that mean I'm consigned to misery? That if I can never get it, never get it to work? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It means you and I need to struggle with this question. We need to grapple with this question. Who or what, who or what can you not live without? What thing must you have in order for your life to be complete? What outcome must you have in order for your life to be right in your mind? What is it you cannot live without? Who is it that you cannot live without? That is a, that is a sobering question. Because if you're, if you're a parent, you've got children in the home and you love them with your very life, then it's quite understandable for you to say, I, I couldn't live without my children. Or if you're married and you love your spouse... Then it would be understandable for you to say, "I couldn't live without my spouse." Now, it, it is totally understandable, and I could see myself saying the, the same thing. But as I think about as I think about it, as deeply as as possible, and I encourage you to do the same, the truth is biblically: we we need to get to the point where we say, "There's only one person I cannot live without." Now, I don't recommend you go and tell your spouse I could do without you. (laughs) Okay? But the truth of the matter is, honestly and biblically, the Lord is the only person that we should say, I cannot live without. Because every other person and every other thing can be taken away, can't it? And this side of heaven, and other than the Lord himself and what he promises to us, friend, then you can't make these things that you desperately want to happen, happen. So you try too hard, and you keep trying too hard, and so you stumble and you err, and you do the downward spiral, and it just feeds on itself, and you do that for years. So you've got to get out of, I've got to get out of the, you've heard me say, the mini Messiah business. Mini, not M-A-N-Y, but small, M-I-N-I. We've got to get out of being our own mini small Messiah. That we do it and we can save the day. And we can make it come out the way it's supposed to come out the sooner we all admit that we can't do that. And we humble ourselves before the Lord and we say, Lord, I am cultivating a relationship with you such that if I have you, I have what I need. There are other things that I would love to happen. But hear this, I would love for those other things to happen more for those other people than for me. more for them than for me. So, in the words of those great theologians, 38 Special, I always give these things that only people 60 and over have any idea what I'm talking about. You know, but they have this song that says, uh, hold on loosely. Hold on loosely. And they have these lyrics in there that say, It's possible for you to love, in this case, your girlfriend, too much. So hold on loosely. And this loving too much, wanting to hold on, and the reason for the warning is because it's not, if we're honest about it, that we love them too much, it's because we need them too much. We need them too much. So we need our spouse. We need our children. So it's got to come out. It's got to be fixed. But what should happen is we get comfortable. We grow to the point, And I'm not telling you that I'm there. But you mature to where you say, Lord, you're the one I need. You know, Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha. And Martha's distracted by all the preparations. And Mary is at Jesus' feet. And Martha is going, Why are you worshiping Jesus when there's housework to do? I mean, that's basically what she's saying. And then Jesus says, You know, Martha, she's got it right. And says... I'm quoting, there's only one thing needful. The one thing needful is Jesus. And the sooner we can come to that, now I can participate in these other relationships for the benefit of the other people, not me. It's not then about me. It's not then about my fulfillment if this thing turns out the way I want, which is can be a losing proposition because I can't make it happen. So you and, and I can be, and if we're honest, we often are controlled by these desires, good desires. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to the recording as we talked about Idols that we create in our heart that are often found in wanting good things too much. We want them so much that they have to happen, and and I have to have them, and if I don't have them, then because I've set them up as an idol, then I'm going to find my fulfillment in this. Now there are all kinds of negative reactions that come out of the failure to have that. Here's another way to put that. Whatever causes you to lose control controls you. Whatever causes you to lose control, controls you. If I, if, and if I, so I can't be happy ab- without it or them. I can't be joyful unless it turns out this way. Then it has become idolatrous to us. So we saw last week the progression then of an idol. Beginning from pages 11 through 15... And we'll pick up on page 16. The pages 11 through 15. And I remind you that it gives, it gives you four things in the progression of an idol being created in your heart. I've expanded those to six steps. Let me give you the six steps. I want I, is the first. I, I slash desire. I desire something or someone. That's the first step. It always begins with a desire in the heart. That desire in the heart is not necessarily, in fact, for Christian people most often, is not for an evil thing. It's most often for a good thing. I want my children to turn out right. I want my children to be well-behaved. I want my husband to, to love me. I want my, my spouse to respect me. I'm like, you know, these are all good things. So it starts with a desire, and for Christian people, most often for a good thing, not an evil thing. But then the next step, though, in this progression of an idol is, I need this. This is not just a desire that you can either have fulfilled or not. No, I need this. In order for me to be able to be what I should be, in order for me to be able to function the way I should, I need this. It becomes a need. And so then the next step, the third, is that I convince myself internally I must, therefore, have this. I want slash desire. I need. I must have this. It must turn out. Well, so far, those first three are expressions of desire. Internally, your own personal desire. I want, I need, I must. But then the next three, the pronoun changes. It goes from I to you. You see, I've got this thing, whatever it is, respect, comfort, love, whatever, good things. But I've got it, and I must have it. And in the interpersonal realm, then, that means that somebody else needs to cooperate. So now the pronoun goes from I to you. I need, or excuse me, I want, I need, I must to you should. You should. (laughs) Here's the thing. Here's the really crazy thing is that a lot of times we've got all this internal junk going on about stuff that we want and we've convinced ourselves we really need to have, and but we're a lot of us are lousy at articulating those things. So they kind of stay internalized, but all the while internally, I have now created an expectation and a demand on somebody else, you should. And they may not even be aware of what they should. When I do premarital counseling, this is one of the things that we, we have to talk about is what are your expectations, and get them out on the table. Because a lot of times people go into their marriage and they have expectations that are unarticulated. And so here you've got a person who's upset just because, and they've got this nebulous, it's supposed to be a different way, but you're not really providing it. I can't really put my finger on it. But it involves another person, and you should. So I I want... I need, I must, you should. And the fifth one then is, you didn't. You miserable sack of sin. (laughs) You didn't. And so here we are. I mean, how do you expect me to live for Jesus? How do you expect me to be a loving spouse? How do you expect me to be able to carry on with kids who are not respecting me, who are not going in the direction. I mean, I'm reading the Bible with them at night. I'm praying with them and for them. I'm taking them to church. I'm I'm homeschooling them. I put them in a Christian school. I put them in a charter school. If they're in a public school, I'm on them like a hawk. I am a helicopter parent hovering over this to make sure that it happens. And how am I supposed to carry on? The way i should and the way all of us want to if you don't cooperate but here it is i must have it you should you you didn't and then finally i've hit the breaking point with your lack of cooperation you didn't so you're gonna pay that's the final that's the sixth step you pay you pay with my maybe it's just sulking Maybe it's just my lack of joy. Maybe, depending on your personality or how long it's gone and how deeply felt, maybe I retaliate in very direct ways. Verbally, maybe even physically. Parents, you can most of you can probably relate to this. You want the child to obey, that's a good thing. The child doesn't obey and you feel this thing just rise up in you. And if a child defies you, at some point, you feel like you want to just haul off and smack that job. You feel guilty. Maybe you've actually succumbed in anger doing that. And if you have, you need to seek forgiveness and teach them how to seek forgiveness, all of that. But I certainly can relate to feeling that way. When my nephews lived with us from junior high all the way through high school, these were two young men living in our house that we got about halfway through. And there were, there were times where I allowed myself to lose control, to get so angry at what they were doing or failing to do sinfully because you want it too much. Whatever causes you to lose control controls you. The first three are all under the umbrella, you know, I want, I need, I must. They're all under the umbrella of desire. And I desire something of another person. And that thing that I desire might be a good thing, but then it moves from the last three from desire to demand. I'm now demanding it from you. You should. You didn't. You'll pay. So back on page 16 then, middle of page 16, we left off with this. For example, a mother may desire her children be respectful and obedient, kind to one another, diligent in developing their gifts and talents, and she can back up each goal, specific scripture that shows that God himself desires such behavior. When they do not fulfill these goals, even after her repeated encouragement or correction, she may feel frustrated, angry, or resentful. She needs to ask, why am I feeling this way? Is it a righteous anger that they're not living up to God's standards? Notice, is it, is it about them? Or is it a selfish anger that they're not giving me the smooth, comfortable, convenient day I want? In most cases, it's a mixture. Part of her truly wants to see her children love and obey God in every area, both for His glory and their good. But another part of her is motivated by a desire for her own comfort and convenience. Which desire is really controlling her heart and reactions? If the God-centered desire is dominating the mother's heart, her response to disobedient children should be characterized by God's discipline toward her. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. As she initiates, or excuse me, imitates God, her response will line up with corrective guidelines found in Galatians six one. If someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, seek to restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. In other words, although her discipline may be direct and firm, it will be wrapped in gentleness and love and leave no residue of resentment or unforgiveness. Notice, here's a person who's in control. Why are they in control? Because it's about the other person. It's not about their well-being. It's about the other person's well-being. Therefore, I can be in control. I don't lose control. But top of page 17, on the other hand, if her desire for comfort and convenience has become an idol, her reaction to her children will be much different. It will be characterized by smoldering anger as well as harsh and unnecessarily hurtful words or discipline. She may feel bitterness or resentment that her desires have been frustrated. And even after disciplining her children, she may maintain a lingering coolness toward them that extends their punishment and warns them not to cross her again. If this latter group of attitudes and actions frequently characterizes her response, it's a sign that her desire for godly children has probably evolved into an idolatrous demand. Now, that's the person who's responding harshly and and all of that, or you can add other unbiblical responses to not getting what you want, in this case, the illustration of parenting with children. But fit anything into that. Fit any desire that you have for a good thing, if it's unrequited, if it's not delivered, then how do, how do you respond? And this mom could respond, yes, that way, but she could also respond with just, she can't function. She can't have the joy of the Lord because of what somebody else did. And, and yet here's the Lord saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. But our response is, but I can't because this isn't happening. So lots of ways to respond to that, and if any of them are contrary to what God expresses as his will in his word, then that's an indication that this has become too important to us. So what's the cure? Page 17. An idol, as we have seen, is any desire that has grown into a consuming demand that rules our our hearts, something that we think we have to have to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. To put it another way, it's something we love, fear, or trust. Love, fear, or trust. Love, fear, trust. These are words of worship. Jesus commands us to love God, fear God, trust God, and God alone. Anytime we long for something apart from God, fear something more than God, trust in something other than God, to make us happy, fulfilled, or secure, we're engaging in the worship of false gods. As a result, we deserve the judgment and wrath of the true God. Now, wow. (laughs) You say, you know, it was already difficult enough to evaluate my own heart with all of this, and now you go and spring that on me. Hey, here's the good news. You deserve judgment and wrath. But just stay with this because we want to get to the solution of that. As a result, we deserve judgment and and wrath of the true God. God deliverance from judgment and we need deliverance from specific idols. There's only one way out of this bondage and judgment. It's to look to God himself who loves to deliver people from their idols. I'm the Lord you got, your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. God has provided the cure for our idolatry by sending his son to experience the punishment we deserve for our sin. Though Jesus, Through Jesus Christ, we can become righteous in God's sight and find freedom from sin and idolatry. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And to receive that, we have to acknowledge our sin, repent of it, put our trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do, we're no longer under God's judgment. Instead, he brings us into God's family, makes us his children and his heirs and enables us to live a godly life. That's the good news of the gospel, forgiveness and eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, And, and let me underscore, friends, that is the one thing you need. That is the one thing every person needs. That is the one thing you should be able to answer the question, what can I not live without? What is it that I have to have to go on living? It should be that. And then deliverance from specific idols. God wants to deliver you not only from our general problem with sin and idolatry, but the specific day-to-day idols that consume us, control us, cause conflict around us. It's not done in a blanket fashion with all our idols being swept away in one great spiritual experience. Instead, God calls us to identify and confess our idols one by one and cooperate with Him as He steadily removes them bit by bit from our hearts. So top of page 18 in a moment, but the bottom of page 17 when it says this doesn't happen all at once in a spiritual experience. So we have tried to cultivate it, our church, avoid uh, creating a camp mentality to the spiritual life. When I say a camp mentality, I don't know how many of you grew up going to camp. But if you grew up going to Christian camp, which I'm not against Christian camp, I just don't want us to create a camp mentality to sanctification. And here's why. Because the camp mentality is you go and you have these kind of high points. You could call it not just camp mentality, conference mentality. I have to go to this particular conference. I go to this conference once a year and it always gets me buzzed up you know, to, to live for Jesus. And then you know, I come home and I'm telling you, man, for the next three weeks I am on fire. Problem is, you got forty nine more weeks to go. Okay, and that's not the way sanctification works. It's not these kind of high point spiritual experiences. It's every day in the slog, putting one foot foot in front of another. That's why they say it's not just putting one big spiritual experience. Top of page eighteen, God conveys His help to us in this identification and deliverance process by three vehicles: the Bible. His Spirit and His Church. The Bible's living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges of the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. As you diligently study, meditate on the Bible, sit under regular sound preaching, God will use His Word like a spotlight and a scalpel in your heart, reveal idolatrous desires, show you how to love and worship God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Holy Spirit aids our deliverance from idols by helping us to understand the Bible, identify our sin, pursue a godly life. So we should pray on a daily basis for the Spirit to guide, convict, strengthen our walk. And finally, God has surrounded us with brothers and sisters in Christ who can teach us, lovingly confront us about our idols, and provide encouragement and guidance in our spiritual growth. This requires we commit ourselves to consistent involvement in a solid biblical church and seek regular fellowship and accountability from spiritually mature believers. Let me say, this is telling you positively what you need to do, what I need to do. To state it negatively, you you ain't going to win this battle of idols of your heart unless you have those things. You need those things. You need all of them. You need God's word. You need God's spirit. You need God's people. And in a fallen world, as a fallen person, You will not survive, you will not make it, you will not mature in Jesus Christ as he intends you to do apart from those. And through these three vehicles of grace, God will help you examine your life and progressively expose and deliver you from the idols that rule your heart. Several key steps. Prayerfully ask yourself the x-ray questions listed previously. And so that is on top of page 16. Top of page 16 last week. You've got those questions to ask yourself and answer to identify the things that rule your heart. And then keep track in a journal so you can identify patterns. Pray daily God will rob your idols of their influence in your life by making you miserable when you give in to them. Describe your idols to your spouse and an accountability partner. Ask them to pray for you, lovingly confront you when they see signs of it controlling you. Realize that idols are masters of change and disguise. As soon as you gain victory over a particular sinful desire, your idol is likely to reappear in a related form with a redirected desire and more subtle means of attracting your attention. So you say, okay, I've finally accepted that I can't change my spouse or I can't make my children be what I want. I can't change the particular circumstance I'm in, whatever it, it is. I've resigned myself to that, but Satan dangles, according to James chapter 1, he dangles bait in front of people because he knows what the fish are biting on. I mean, that's what he uses, James chapter 1, is fishing imagery. And so Satan dangles the bait for you that attracts you. So if you're dealing with this one area, then he's going to dangle another area. Well, you say, well, then it's hopeless. Absolutely not. The more you do this now, the more you've developed the habit of rejecting idols and worshiping and living for the true and living God. Second to the last one there. If you're dealing with an idol that's difficult to identify or conquer, go to your pastor or some other spiritually mature advisor, seek their counsel, most of all. Ask God to replace your idols with a growing love for Him and a consuming desire to worship Him and Him alone. If someone told you that you had a deadly cancer that would take your life if you didn't get treatment, you'd probably spare no effort or expense in pursuing the most rigorous treatment available. Well, you do have cancer, a cancer of the soul. It's called sin and idolatry. But there's a cure called the gospel, and it's administered through the word, the spirit, and the church. And the more rigorously you avail yourself of these means of grace, the greater effect they'll have in delivering you from the idols that plague your plague your soul. Now, the next C there on page nineteen talks about replacing your idol worship and worship the true and living God. Now the replace part is important. Because the Bible never simply identifies what your problem is and says, get rid of the problem. We already said that idols then can disguise themselves in other ways. And so they can now tempt you toward a different idol. And so simply stopping one thing is not where God ends his counsel to us. He doesn't say stop it. He says, stop it, but replace it. That's why the Bible doesn't only say put off. It also says what? Put on. You replace it with something else and better. And that's then what this point is about. Replace idol worship with worship of the true God. In his excellent book, Future Grace, John Piper teaches that sin is what you do when you're not fully satisfied in God. And that's, a fairly, that's actually a profound definition. Because I've got to find my satisfaction in someone or something else. And if I don't get that, sin is what I do. That may be said about idolatry. It's what we do when we're not fully satisfied in God. In other words, if we're not fulfilled and secure in God, we inevitably seek other sources of happiness and security. So if you want to squeeze the idols out of your heart and leave no room to return... Make it your top priority to aggressively pursue an all-consuming worship of the living God. So how do you do that? Repent before God. When we repent and confess our sins and idols, believing in our forgiveness through Christ, we also confess our faith in Christ. Repentance and confession of our faith in in the true God is true worship. Now, in the next, in fact, if you'll look at page 21... This thing's going off because I said it for five minutes beforehand. Not for your benefit so that I won't go over, but so that I'm reminded that we need to stack the chairs. That's what that was. Okay. (laughs) I'm still perfectly willing to go over. No, We'll be done shortly here. But starting on page 21 and that we will begin to look at next week, we look at the power for peacemaking that actually does come from the gospel. And one of the things that that we'll do is talk about um, confession. In fact, if you don't mind, turn to page 26. I just want to show you where we're going. Page 26. You see at the top it says confession brings freedom. So we're going to talk about how I do these things that Piper is talking about. Over the next uh, couple of sessions, we're going to talk about what actually confession is. Confession is not a priest, it's not a booth where you go and confess to somebody else, but what is it? And we're going to see what it is. So, back to page 19, when we talk about repent and confess, these are all Bible words that you've heard if you've been in church over the years, but you may not know exactly what they mean, we will see those. Fear God, as I said in our first hour, if you were in the first hour, fear God is a reverence or an awe. We stand in awe of the true God when we're tempted to fear others and are afraid of losing something precious. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Be afraid of the one who can destroy both. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness. Therefore you are held in awe. You are revered. Desire the one who forgives us and provides everything we need instead of looking to others who cannot save you. Loving God. Top of page 20. Trusting God. Rely on the one who sacrificed his son for you and has proven himself to be absolutely dependable in every situation. And then delight in God. John Piper, who was quoted earlier, uh, Piper says really profound things. Really profound things. Sometimes he says squirrely things too. So he, he really has. He's just said some squirrely things. I just throw that out there because if you read Piper, you're doing a good thing. Um, if you read Piper and you find a squirrely kind of statement, I warned you. Okay? That's the but his claim to fame and one of the, the not one of the best thing that he has done for the Christian community is to focus our attention on delighting in God. And, in fact, the name of his ministry is Desiring God. And that is a very, 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 very helpful emphasis. And he gives credit to Jonathan Edwards for a lot of Edwards' thoughts, and he's kind of, Piper's kind of popularized those. But delighting in God. Find your greatest joy in thinking about God, meditating on His works, talking to others about Him, praising Him, and giving Him, giving him thanks. And friends, if you can get to the point where you delight in God, now this is the God that you find your fulfillment in. This is the God you hold in reverence and awe. This is the God that you trust. Now everything else is a stewardship under this good God. My spouse, my marriage is a stewardship for him. My raising of my children is a stewardship for him. It's an offering to him. It's an act of worship for him. And in all of it, Lord, I recognize that you are God and I'm not. I'm not the many Messiah. I can't make these things happen. But Lord, I will use every last bit of what you give me in order to move it in the direction that you desire for the people that you've placed in my life. It's not first about me, it's first about them. And even if those people don't cooperate and they don't go the way I want them to go, my relationship with you will grow sweeter and stronger and more delightful every day. That's where you want to get. That's where I want to get. All right, we're going to pray, and then we'll give some instructions about uh, moving the chairs, okay? Our Father, we thank you again for the blessings of this Lord's Day, and thank you, Lord, for loving us enough to not leave us to grope in darkness, but rather to instruct us from your Word. And so we thank you that Holy Scripture is our guidebook for life. It tells us about you. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us about our struggles, the forms, the various forms that those come in. And, Lord, you've told us what to do about them. The ultimate answer is you and our relationship with you and cultivating that relationship with you. But help us now over the next final few weeks to be able to see specifically how we do that as we confess our sin to you, as we repent as we move our fear and our awe from other persons and things onto you, as you are the highest object of our love, as we delight, Lord, in you. Help us to think about that this afternoon and this week, to put it into practice. And then, Lord, we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, men, we are going to do the uh, chairs. Pastor Larry is in a back room doing the live stream for us, and he's going to emerge any moment.